Good morning and welcome to our morning service. Good to see you all here this morning, that you made it safely in this uh, stormy weather we've been having. However, here we are, gathered together to worship the Lord, and we thank Him for that. Welcome to those who are on Zoom this morning, and pray that the Lord would indeed bless our time together. Glad to have our brother Floyd Wilson here this morning, and he will come now uh, to read the morning scripture and to lead us in prayer, Floyd. Good morning. I've already made my uh, one mistake of the day by the date in your outline, <laughs> so I'm greatly relieved. <laughs> Our scripture reading this morning is Mark chapter 10, reading verses 1 through 12. Mark chapter 10. Then he, Jesus, arose from there and came to the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan. And multitudes were gathered to him again. And as he was accustomed, he taught them again. The Pharisees came and asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Testing him. And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. And Jesus answered and said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. In the house, his disciples also asked him again about the same matter. So he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. In this passage, Jesus affirms his uh, original or God's original design for marriage that we're going to get into in our Genesis series a little bit later. So you can just keep that in mind, and you probably already recognize the two verses that are quoted from the Old Testament. So let's now uh, unite our hearts and minds together as we pray to our Lord. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word, and that you care enough to make us and to tell us what the truth is about how you made us and how you want us to be and live. But most of all today, we give praise that we have a Savior. We needed Jesus to come, to die and rise again with grace sufficient to save all who repent and believe. And Lord, thank you for uh, helping us to come to that realization that we are accountable to our Creator, that we have sinned against our Creator, and that we needed a Savior to die in our place so that we could be forgiven and we could be welcomed into your family. 
Lord, we're so thankful for the good news of Jesus Christ. And it's good news not just for us, but for people that we meet in this world who are disillusioned with all the, the things of life that are, are not satisfying, but don't meet their deepest spiritual need that don't bring them into reconciliation with you, their God. And so, Lord, thank you for adopting us as your sons and daughters and help us to live as you want us to live in this world. And we know that there are times when the selfishness and pride of our own old sinful nature uh, rise up to the surface and, and uh, lead us to say and do things that are dishonoring to you. And so, Lord, we confess these things and we ask for your forgiveness and know that we have it because Jesus died in our place, bearing all our sins. And Lord, help us now that we have recognized our sin and recognize your forgiveness to then rely on you and your grace to live more and more like Jesus each day. And as we deal with other people who, who also may do things wrong and even wrong us, help us be willing to forgive them as you forgave us. And this morning, as we continue in prayer, we pray for the needs of other people, uh, some of those needs and people uh, we are well aware of. And so, Lord, uh, we just pause to lay them before you and, and trust you to supply their need. And it may be, Lord, there are souls here in this service today that are burdened for uh, the cares of this life um, and, and maybe especially burdened in their relationship with you or lack thereof. And so, Lord, please be at work in these people. And, and Lord, we don't w just want to pray for other people and their spiritual need. We pray for our own. You know we have needs too. They can be uh, known publicly and known by us in our hearts. But Lord, we need you to minister to us according to as you perfectly know what we're thinking and what our motives are and what we've done. Lord, please continue your good work in us and help us to love you and to trust that you will continue to supply our need, that you will help us to say no to things when that is required and to say yes to other things that you are leading us to do and be. And so we love you, Lord. We really want to be ser serious followers of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. That was excellent. Well, Brother Floyd, welcome and may the Lord bless. Please open your Bible to Genesis chapter 2. And we'll be here for the whole thing. So it's the first book of the Bible, second chapter. Genesis chapter 2, and I hope that you will follow along. Genesis chapter 2. <clears throat> 
Okay, let us pray. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to look into your word, to understand what you want to teach us from it, and to do in response to it. In Jesus' name, amen. If I see something beautiful, I want to capture it with my camera. And so what I first try to do is take a picture of the entire scene. If we could show that, okay. And this is an example from my wife and I's 2022 20, 50th wedding anniversary trip to Lake Louise in the Rocky Mountains of Alberta. So you see that scene? Can you believe I took that <laughs> with my little camera? <laughs> but then what I try to do is take a closer, a close-up of various parts of the scene that especially interest me. So in the next uh, picture, you'll see the white glacier. This is mid-July, and so that's the glacier. Do you see it coming there from the top of the mountain? And I think it comes to the edge of the cliff. See, the glaciers are ice that's moving like a river, and then it will drop off you know, periodically when it gets out too much, okay? So that's the, the second thing that I zeroed in on. And then the third one, uh, you should see the moraine of rock debris that's the result of the, of the glacier moving forward and dropping off and uh, the, the ice melting and the stones and whatever that it brought with it are dropped there, okay? And that's, of course, over many years to get that much. So... Um, so, so that's what I like to do when, when I'm taking pictures. And I, I very seldom take pictures, but when I go on a trip, I want to take a few. Okay, so what we're doing today uh, in, in this message, uh, the day six account of, from Genesis chapter 1, verses 24 through 31, which we already had that in a previous sermon, that is like the bird's eye view of the whole scene of what God did on day six when he created the land animals and then the male and female human beings. But today, in our scripture from Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 25, it's like the close-ups on various parts of the scene from, from back in Genesis 1. And it will, will show us and, and tell us about various aspects of things that happen on the day 6. So now let's first read Genesis 2, verses 4 through 7. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, before any plant of the field was in the earth and before any herb of the field had grown. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now verse 4 here is kind of like the title introducing these historical close-ups that are going to follow. Now as day 6 began there was already vegetation which God had made on day three, and it was already growing on the earth's dry land. 
And it seems that this vegetation was watered by some kind of mist since God had not yet uh, caused it to rain. And at this point, on day six, there was still no man to till the ground. Now in verse five, it says before any plant of the field was in the earth. And that word before, I, I believe, implies that later on day six, God is going to create plants and herbs that can benefit from man's cultivation. In other words, he's going to make more things that grow, more special things that particularly uh, man would, would want to cultivate. But first, the Lord must make a man who is able to do this work. And so that brings us to verse 7, and I'll read it again. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. I think the dust of the ground that's mentioned here is referring to the elements that you may have learned in high school when you took chemistry. The most essential of these elements are the hydrogen and oxygen that link together to make water. And I don't know if you knew this, but most of our body is made up of water. If it wasn't for that, we'd be shriveled like prunes. <laughs> but then God also used nitrogen, uh, carbon, calcium, and phosphorus and other trace elements together with the hydrogen and oxygen to make our physical bodies. So the Lord combined all these elements to make the various parts of a man's body ready to function. But then the Lord, as it says in verse 7, he infused that physical body with the breath of life. And the result was the first living human being. Now, I can't explain how God deliberately formed a man's complex body in just a moment or a few minutes on, on day six. But neither can evolutionists explain how random mutations could form a human body over millions of years. I believe it's far more reasonable to believe that God created man than that chance did it. Reading on, verse uh, 8 and 9 of Genesis 2. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, the Garden of Eden, as much as I can understand it, was an enclosed area. That's, that's what a garden is, like, you know, in the word. It's a garden, a special place that God made somewhere on planet Earth, and I have no idea where. And God specially designed this wonderful place for the man to live. The Lord God made many trees grow in this garden for man's pleasure and to provide food. Among them was the tree of life. At this point, the Lord God does not explain what the tree of life is, what its purpose is. But it seems to me that the very name tree of life suggests that it has something to do with God's provision of everlasting life for man. 
The other unique tree that God put in the Garden of Eden was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We're going to learn about this tree in a few minutes. Reading verses 10 through 14. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four river heads. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gion. It is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Hydekel. It is the one which goes toward the east of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. Now, it mentions a number of geographical features here and place names, and I'm thinking that these, all these place names and everything, they don't relate to anything that we know of in, in the world today. I, I don't expect that, that we could go to whatever, these place names and find that particular place. And the reason I say this is that there's an event that we haven't got to in the book of Genesis called the flood. <laughs> and it just devastated everything. And so I wouldn't expect that that these names relate to things, uh, to geographical features today. But I expect, as we do here, we take names that are to places in England and we apply them to places here, or places in uh, France, and we, we put them on our street signs and things like this. I think that that's probably what happened here, that some of these things, like, for example, the Euphrates, uh, that's a good name for a river. We'll, and there's one over there in the Middle East, and we'll call it the Euphrates, and it is today. Okay, But I don't, I don't really think that the river that this is talking about is flowing in the same channel as the Euphrates River today because the flood came. Okay, uh, reading on. Genesis 2, 15 through 17. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now this passage is talking about man's physical and moral responsibilities. The man's physical responsibilities in the Garden of Eden involve a four-letter word called work. Everybody cheering for that? It's work. That's what we were made to do, so we shouldn't complain about it. Verse 15 indicates that the man was to tend and keep it. This is what God's work is for him, to tend and keep in the garden. Tend is about managing what grows in the garden, Keeping, keep, refers to guarding the garden against intruders and unauthorized activities. So, since the first man, this is before sin was in the world, the first man was given work to do by God. So don't ever say work is a curse. It's not. It's part of God's plan for us to do work. 
This work involves doing our part to provide food, clothing, and shelter. Adam, whoops, I wasn't to say that yet. <laughs> that man, he, he was to tend the garden. He had work to do regarding his food even, okay? It wasn't just all growing, you know, by itself. It was, yeah, I know it was, but anyway, there was work to be done, whatever it might have been. And our work also includes guarding ourselves from evil and protecting our families and helping to maintain order in our communities. So in other words, we have some keeping to do as well in our personal lives and in our families and in our community. Now we come to man's moral responsibility. And as this, these verses are telling us, that moral responsibility involves obeying the Lord's, Lord God's command not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The man already knew about good because a loving and wise creator had made him. He lived in a beautiful and bountiful garden. He knew what good was because he was experiencing it every day. But if the man chose to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would not just know that there could be evil, he would actually do evil and experience the good, the good, the guilt that it brings when you do evil. You understand the difference? It's, it would be one thing for him to know, theoretically there could be evil if I disobey what God says here. But if he actually eats of that fruit from that tree, then he's going to actually experience himself. He would know what guilt was. He would feel the guilt that it brings. The penalty for breaking God's command not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God says, is certain death. I don't think the man would understand the concept of spiritual and physical death because he had never felt it, he had never observed it. But the fact that this warning is given so solemnly by God in conjunction with his command that death would come if you disobeyed in this way, that would surely convey that this was a bad thing, that death was a bad thing. Even though he had never seen any creature die, he had never died, he, he, did, he had no personal experience of it. What's the concept of death, you know? How do we understand it today? Well, we see people die, right? Or things die. And he didn't have that experience, but the way God said it to him, I'm sure he knew that it would be a bad thing to disobey God. Both the death of the man's relationship with God and the death of his body would be something terrible. And please don't do it. And we have a moral responsibility to obey God today. Just like we have physical responsibilities, we have a moral responsibility. For us, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil appears in the form of choices that we have to choose whether to obey God or not, because really that was what the choice was for, 
for the man, right? At least as it was given to the man first there. Will I obey or not? And that choice is before us. Will we believe what God says? Will we follow what he says? Or will we try it out and experience with through personal knowledge and experience what it would be like to disobey God and, and feel that guilt? Well, at this point in uh, Genesis 2, verse 17, we do not know how the man will respond to God's command. So that brings us to verse 18. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Now God says this during his day six creation work. In other words, he's, he's made the Garden of Eden, he's, he's made the man, and, and now he says in verse 18, it's not good that man should be alone, I will make him a helper comparable to him. So, just recall back into chapter 1. After God had made, um, in Genesis 1 verse 31, after he had made both the man and the woman, and had done every, all his work on day 6, he said, this is very good. Remember him saying that? Okay. But at this point in day 6, there's something wrong. Because in verse 18 of chapter 2, he says, it's not good that man should be alone. So in other words, at the end of day 6, he could say, this is all very good. But then partway through day 6, he says, this is not good. This is not good. There's something wrong here. I need to do something. God understood the man's need for an appropriate companion and co-worker. Very soon, the Lord will provide for his need. Verses 19 and 20. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. So the Lord God brought beasts and birds to Adam for naming. This is the first time I've referred to, well, it's not the first time. It's the first time I intended to refer to the man as Adam. And I should explain why I didn't intend to say that name until right now. The Hebrew word for man is Adam. But Genesis 2.19 is the first time in the New King James Version, and probably in the King James Version too, the first time that it, it transliterates the word uh, Adam and, and says Adam, okay? It's just using its Adam, making it English, you might say, okay? Uh, so that's the first time it's, it's translated that way. And actually, whether... Uh, the, it's up to the translator. In some translations of the Bible, earlier on in chapter 2, it's calling the man, calling him Adam. Or some translations continue on past this point and still say the man. It's both correct. 
You can either translate the meaning of the Hebrew word, which is man, or you can transliterate, taking the Hebrew letters and making them like English letters, and say Adam. It's, both, it's right both ways. Okay, so I, I'm, I was just trying to keep with what my, my, uh, the, the translation here actually did. Okay, so giving Adam an opportunity to name the cattle and the birds in, in chapter 2, verse 19, implies that God is assigning responsibility for these creatures to Adam. Like if he, ha- if he can say, now that's your name and that's your name and that's what I'm going to call you, that's, that's kind of implying a, a responsibility for, for those creatures. But God had another reason for this parade of creatures before Adam and, and this naming time and all that. And the reason is suggested in the last sentence of verse 20, where it says, but for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. Now, do you remember back in verse 18? It says, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. And now here, after Adam has had all these creatures go by, not one of them is comparable to him. And do you get what I'm trying to say to you? I'm, I'm trying to say that God knew that none of the cattle and birds would do as appropriate mates for Adam. <laughs> okay? But the man didn't know that until they're all passing by and he's, no, 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 you know. Uh, none of these are going to meet my needs. God knew it, but now the man knows it. None of these are right for me. None of these creatures could have the potential to become the friend and intimate partner to fill the loneliness that is in that man's heart when he's alone. And, uh, you know, I'm not a dog lover. Some, some of you people just love your dogs and cats and all that stuff. And, and maybe they, they fill some nook in your heart that... Uh, that a human being could face, fill. But anyway, for Adam, you know, he just couldn't see that the dog could fulfill his need. God knew it couldn't fulfill his need either. He needed somebody else. So, verses 21 and 22. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. This is saying God used one of the man's ribs to make a woman. Now some of you may wonder whether Adam was missing a rib for the rest of his life. Anybody wondering that? Well, did you know that if you have a rib that's broken off today, okay, broke off, whatever, in a certain way that your rib can grow back? Like, that's true. Medically, you can look it up in the medical books. It's possible for a rib to grow back. Now, the second thing that I would say is that men, you don't need to count your ribs on, you know, how many on this side and how many on this side and see if there's an uneven number. Have you ever thought about that? I think I did as a kid. (laughs) 
Did you know that if I have an accident and I lose a rib, or if I have my arm cut off or, you know, or amputated or something, and I, I had a baby, the baby is going to have all the ribs and going to have two arms, right? It has nothing to do with what happens to me, you know, like the, the genetics are there for, for the future. So it's the same with Adam. You know, don't, don't think that everybody after Adam was missing a rib or something. Okay. Uh, why am I getting into all this? <laughs> Verse 23. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of a man. Now, Adam had a response to God's newest creation here, which was different than he had to all the other creatures uh, that God had made. He didn't feel this way about the birds or the beasts. But he says here, now, at last, finally, I've met my match. She is just right for me. And Adam calls her woman. The Hebrew word is isha. Because she was taken out of man, the Hebrew word for man is ish. So ish is man, isha is woman. It's the very same thing in our English language. We have man and woman. You see how they're, they're related? It's the same in Hebrew, it's the same in English. Adam's naming this special person, woman, indicates he is accepting responsibility for her in a greater way than he has responsibility for the living creatures that he previously named. The woman doesn't just have bone and flesh. She has his bone and flesh. You get it? Later, Adam will give this woman a more personal name, in Genesis 3, verse 20. And I'm going to try not to say it now <laughs> because it has not yet happened in the narrative. So men, I hope this Bible, Bible passage is starting to build enthusiasm for your wife. If you're not married, you can just imagine the enthusiasm that you could have someday when you do have a wife, okay? Uh, but right now, I, I could just take some time and I could speak of all the amazing features of my wife, okay? Uh, and she's there saying, oh, no. <laughs> uh, you know, I could talk all about that. But, you know, I'm not going to do it. Because if I took five minutes to talk, or whatever, more, to talk about all the other husbands would be saying, when we're lining up here, if you get to talk about your wife, I get to talk about mine. Okay, so I'm not going to talk about her. <laughs> Okay, <clears throat> so now we come to the foundational passage about marriage that we've all been uh, eager to get to. It's the one that's quoted three times in the New Testament, including the passage that I read as the scripture earlier. So it's Genesis 2, verses 24 and 25. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. In these verses, God is instituting marriage. He defines marriage as one man and one woman committing themselves 
to each other. In our day, people have attempted to redefine marriage, allowing it to include two people of the same sex. God, or no, government and courts can change the law to suit people's behavioral preferences, but they can never change what the Bible teaches about what God's design for marriage is. It will be forever. It can't be changed. This is what marriage is. It's what the Bible says it is. So let's get into the details of these verses. First, Genesis 2.24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother. Although both the man and woman must leave their parental family in order to start a new family, verse 24 specifically says about the man leaving his, his father and mother. This suggests that the man should take the initiative proposing the marriage. It also implies that the man accepts the responsibility of being a husband and possibly later a father. Leaving also means that neither the, man and, neither the man or the woman should let their parents interfere in their relationship. Uh, maybe it's fine for parents to give wise counsel to their kids when they're married and have their own family, but there's a fine line, isn't there, between uh, counsel and interference. And so we have to avoid doing that because... It says the man leaves his father and mother. He has this new family. In fact, in the, the ceremony that I used in weddings all through the years, um, there's a part of the ceremony that actually helps to emphasize this part of, of the leaving of your, the home you grew up in to have this new family. And it's the point, it's toward the beginning of the ceremony or just after the father has brought his, uh, the bride up the aisle, uh, there's a question that's asked. Who gives this woman to be married to this man? And the man who's standing there with the bride is to answer, and he better answer, <laughs> her mother and I do. In other words, we are giving our daughter over to you. And you're going to... And so that's a leaving. It's, you know, I've got her on my arm, but I'm giving you over to marry this man. And, and I can't, me or my wife aren't going to be able to take you back next week. <laughs> <laughs> there is also a legal aspect to the leaving. The government is involved by authorizing the one who solemnizes the marriage and then the government receives and records the form that registers the marriage. The law of God is also in effect, making marriage a lifelong commitment. Jesus says in Mark 10, verse 9, which we read, Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. Another aspect of the leaving is the witnesses to the commitments made at the marriage or wedding ceremony. Uh, on the marriage documents, there is one witness who signs underneath the, the groom's name, his signature, and there's another witness who signs underneath the bride's signature. And this is right on the, 
the marriage document. And there are also family and friends and, and other people who uh, come to witness what the uh, man and woman say to each other and to God in the wedding ceremony. And it's really important that the man and woman who get married actually leave their father and mother to start the new family and that everybody knows and even they in their hearts know you do have to leave. And and um, <laughs> anyway, I, won't, I could tell some stories, but I won't. <laughs> okay, so let's continue for the second part. After Genesis 2.24 says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, it continues saying, and be joined to his wife. Now the joining is the bonding aspect of marriage. I'd like you to think of joining two pieces of wood together with carpenter's glue. You clamp it and let it dry and just see what that bond is. The bond is even tighter than the wood itself, okay? So that if you, you know, try to split them apart, you're going to grab pieces of wood from one piece out of, you know, the other. It's really bound together. That's what we're talking about here. The man is to stick to his wife and she is to stick to him. They are bonded. They're joined together. I'll try to explain marital bonding in practical terms. There's an emotional dimension that goes beyond romance. For the man and wife, husband and wife, are friends and hopefully best friends. I don't know if you are a married couple here. I hope you are best friends with your spouse. These desires and feelings are important, but they're not as vital as the commitment of the will. In a Bible-based Christian wedding, the groom and bride make promises to each other and to God. These vows are at the heart of the marriage covenant, but they have to be followed up by a daily commitment to do what is necessary to keep them. Both the husband and wife must be determined to endure the hard times of an unwanted outward circumstances. They also must work to... Um, to resolve the conflicts that come because of the sin nature that's in each of them. Did you know I still have a sin nature? Okay. And sometimes it comes up. It gets up there and causes trouble. And, and that's true of any couple. You have to deal with these things and work on the conflicts that come and disagreements and all the rest. Each spouse needs to receive the grace of God, enabling him or her to admit being wrong and to ask for forgiveness. You know that it's hard to admit being wrong. It took me a year of being married before I ever admitted to anything was wrong. It was always, Helen was always the one that was wrong. It took me a year to learn that, but hopefully you people didn't take that long. Okay. Um, our feelings go up and down, but the commitment has to remain. For we are joined so long as we both shall live. That's Romans 7, verses 1 through 3. And also our Mark 10, verse 9, that God has joined them together. Okay, now let's get to the third aspect. We've considered the leaving and the joining parts of God's design for marriage. Now in Genesis 2, verse 24, it concludes with, and they shall become one flesh. 
Becoming one flesh is about the private, physical aspect of marriage. Two bodies joined together in a unique and wonderful experience of oneness. There are things to learn about this in preparation for marriage and lots to learn afterwards. Verse 25, And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. This verse indicates that the human body is good. Sexual immorality, uh, im, in, oh, I said the wrong word. Sexual intimacy in the marriage of a husband and wife is one of God's most wonderful blessings. But Satan and his human influencers work to undermine God's design for marriage, especially the becoming one flesh dimension of it. They promote living together before marriage. The world and the devil promote adultery after marriage. They promote spreading pornography and anything else that rebels against God and his design for marriage. Each of these aspects of God's design for marriage is essential and need to work together. I've tried to visualize these uh, interrelated dimensions of marriage with this diagram that will pop up here, Kurt. Okay. So you see the leaving and the joining and becoming one flesh. They are distinct aspects of marriage, but they all link together in, a, in the marriage union. We should be compassionate toward those who are trapped by the world's deceptions and are suffering the consequences of their foolish, rebellious choices. But we must never affirm the sinful practices that got them into that situation. Rather, we should take the opportunity to tell people about our Savior, Jesus Christ. Because whatever mess people have gotten into in having a lifestyle that's contradictory to what God's design is for marriage, whatever it is, God wants to set them free. And that's why Jesus came, to set them free, inside and outwardly as well, both now and for eternity. In the Garden of Eden, the man and woman had an opportunity for a glorious future in harmony with each other and with their God. Next time we're going to learn about what happened. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for your word which so beautifully outlines the way you designed us to be as human beings. And in the relationship of marriage that's at the foundation of the family and future human beings here on earth. And so, Lord, um, you've helped us to think about our own marriages or our own relationship with you or what we hope might be in the future or maybe it's not to be in that way, uh, to be married, but to be um, a person who upholds marriage as a single person and uh, encourages uh, other marriages and families and, and children to be what you want them to be as opposed to living in the ways of the world 
which make all these promises of all the pleasures that doing these things will bring, but result in heartache and devastation in the end. And so, Lord, help us all, whether married or single, as young uh, children, as uh, teenagers or adults or grandparents, that we will all want to uphold what you have designed for marriage and family to be. And as human beings, to fulfill your purposes for us in the work that you want us to do and the relationship that you want us to have with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.